0: Welcome to Seattle on Tap. I am Courtney Jacobson. I'm Ashley Toten. How's it going?
1: <laughs> oh, it's going. This is our first uh, evening recording session, and so I stayed very sober all day long. And I'm finally having a beer, but I'm sleepy. You're diving in. Oh <laughs> well, no, I won't go to bed till midnight anyway.
0: Oh, I, I will be in bed way before that now that I get up at 6.30 every day. <laughs> well, how are you doing? You have a new job. Um, I'm doing pretty well. I started a new job this week and um, it is the first time I'm not in the restaurant industry since 2008, seven or eight, seven, oh. eight. I can't remember it's so long i can't remember um yeah i'm going to be doing some some phone sales
1: which is awesome because i mean for multiple reasons it's awesome because you really need a job shit yeah. was a little hairy but then um yeah it's also cool that it's something new but considering the pandemic that's still happening yeah remotely and you don't have to like hire somebody to come hang out with Layla. Layla does school stuff, which I'm sure has been a challenge
0: with working too. It has been quite the adjustment. <laughs> oh my god. Aww. Um, Yeah. Uh, poor Gordon has had to maneuver his schedule quite a bit more than normal. He's been very, very great about being close by so that Layla can ask him questions because I'm like right what? here. face in the computer headphones on listening to classes and stuff trying to get everything ready but yeah it's been different (laughs) Mm -hmm. and yeah learning a new job is always exhausting Mm -hmm. even if you're just sitting in a chair for the whole time your brain is fried so let's see how this is going to (laughs) go so far we're doing great (laughs) I win Oh, so what are you drinking over there? Me? Mm.
1: Uh, I am drinking the coffee dino s'mores, which is exactly what it sounds like it is. It is a um, graham flour, marshmallow, vanilla bean, cocoa nib, and molasses uh, imperial stout that has Kenyan coffee added to it.
0: Oh, that sounds so yummy.
1: Thing. And I, it's made by Off Color Brewing in Chicago, who I've okay. had beers before on the show. Yeah. Their beers knock my fucking socks off. Like, every beer I've had from them is just like, <sighs> why is it so good? Um, this little baby, although it's sweet and delicious, is 10.5%. Ooh. You know, we're night capping it up here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no side of whiskey for you yet? Not. But- Yet no, <laughs> <laughs> not till post record. Um, well, I am going fully a different direction than you are today, and I am drinking Snugglebug. Oh, that was a tiny one. How disappointing! <laughs> I thought for sure I had a good one in the chamber there, but no. Nope. Um, I'm drinking Snugglebug from Smog City Brewing. This is a American style sour blond ale made with raspberries and boysenberries. So, um, oh, and Smog City Brewing is out of Torrance, California. Um, and again, going with the whole totally opposite from you, mine is only 4.8%. <laughs> yeah, we
1: did a little pre-funk thing like we usually do. hmm I legit thought you were about to pour dark beer too. And we did the thing.
0: (laughs) That was fun. (laughs) I like to keep you guessing. Yes. You're good. (laughs) I was like, what is that? (laughs) But yeah. Um, my -hmm. first, I'm going to say two sips of this. I was like, Ooh, Ooh, sour faces. Um, but now it's very, very easy to drink once you get past that. Okay, we're drinking a sour. It's sour.
1: <laughs> then yes. it's real delicious. I'm rolling up. Uh, also, it just occurred to me, since we last recorded,
0: we have a new president. Oh my God, yeah. We were talking about that last time, about how, well, president-elect. hmm The United States collectively had a sigh of relief this Saturday. What were you doing? You were working. Or, no, you were about to work. No, I'll shut up and let you answer your, the question I asked you.
1: <laughs> well, first of all, the morning that it was announced, I felt like I was having a fever dream because <laughs> I right in one of the main hubs in West Seattle, uh, probably the main hub, I guess, technically. Yeah. And I could hear drumming and trumpeting and air horns and screaming and like pots and paint. I was like, uh, what the fuck is happening? But I woke up having these like crazy ass dreams. Yeah. And look out the window. I'm like, "Is the apocalypse upon us. What's happening. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I realized I had like 15 text messages and yeah. I start Ever You it was several people being mm-hmm. like, picture of Biden. and yeah! And I was yeah. like, Yay! The world's not ending. <laughs> <laughs> is it real?
0: <laughs> no work. Oh. Yeah. Shift. But I bet I bet people were a lot more happy than they've been in a while coming to see you. Happy
1: and too drunk for me to serve in a lot of cases.
0: Oh, I
1: hate that. <laughs>
0: Boo. But you know. Yeah. That is- for reasons rather than bad for once (laughs) in four years yeah um i was taking a moment to sleep in and gordon and layla were trying very hard to let me get some sleeping in time and they finally just gave in and like crashed in the room and we're like we got a new president he won (laughs) (laughs) You were like, jumped on me in bed <laughs> and I'm like, what, what time is it? What's going on? <laughs> and then we, um, reached out to some friends in our, our quarantine bubble and we ended up, go- we were like, we got to come over. We're having a sleepover. <laughs> we invited ourselves over, <laughs> but we brought food. So, you know, caring is caring after all. Yeah. <laughs> We brought food and beer and champagne and uh, the the girls, we both, you know, we all have daughters that are, this is another couple that is in the little bubble. Anyway, the daughters all had fun and played, stayed up way too late. And then once they finally went to bed, the adults continued having a lot more fun and stayed up way too late. And yeah, it was (laughs) a good time. We all just kept talking about how eventually we can get back to life and, and, and we're going to still have rights and, and (laughs) no bonus for us. Yeah. All right. So today. I don't remember. I'm really bad at first. You're first. I am. And I thought I would keep it with the kind of. Positivity that we have going, this new positivity theme that's happening this week. <laughs> I like it. I'm going to go with it. All right. Um, I'm going to tell you about Stagecoach Mary. Have you heard of her? Not, but I've been. Well, Mary Fields, later nicknamed Stagecoach Mary or Black Mary is a was a full-on badass um she was born in tennessee into slavery sometime in 1832 and we say sometime because you know they you know were slaves and people sucked um she is famous for being the first african-american woman to work as a mail carrier back then (laughs) um so In these back in these days, uh, the U.S. Postal Service um, didn't employ every single person that transferred mail. They actually, for longer places, like for example, taking a bunch of mail from one town to the next town. Uh, they used um, contractors for that type of work. They weren't directly employees of the U.S. Postal Service. Mm -hmm. So that's where Mary comes in. She ended up having one of those, or actually, yeah. Anyway, she ended up having one of those contracts, one of those routes. And obviously, I'm not going to tell a story of someone that had a boring-ass route. So here we go. Um. Be, but, of course, we'll tell you a little bit of who she was because I'm not, you know, I always do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Like I said, she was born into slavery um, and was freed in about 1865 after slavery was abolished, after that whole Civil War thing. Um, and then she... At some point after being freed, because records were obviously pretty hard to keep track of, like where people went, they just kind of were like, uh, you know, there wasn't a written record of each and every place someone went. Um, so she <clears throat> ended up working as a chambermaid in on the Robert E. Lee riverboat on the Mississippi River. And while working there, she met... Judge Edmund Dunn, and um, he, of course, has his own story of prominence in history, blah blah blah. However, I'm not talking about him. Um, so she met him and ended up, to say, you know, going to work with him uh, in his home and in Ohio, and. Well, there, after some time, unfortunately, his wife passed away, and that was in 1883. Um, so, because in these times, men couldn't, couldn't possibly raise their own children by themselves, uh, Mary was interested with taking his five children to live with his sister. I know that's a lot of kids. So she took these kids crossed across Ohio to Toledo and um, to live with their aunt who happened to be a, um, I almost said priest, she was Mother Mary Amadeus. Um, and she was actually Mother Superior at the convent where she was in Toledo, Ohio. Um, And so Mary took the kids there, dropped them off, went back to work for the judge. Um, Sometime later, Mother Mary Amadeus, the aunt, um, gets transferred to Montana Territory to open up and run a school for girls obviously it's gonna be you know run by a convent kind of thing but um a school for girls for native american children and um this was at saint peter's mission um in my like about ten and a half miles northwest of Cascade, Montana, which Cascade, Montana, even then, wasn't a big, huge area. But anyway, so Mother Mary Amadeus, five kids, they all make the trek up to Montana from Idaho, or sorry, from Ohio, and um, unfortunately, shortly after they all got there, Mother Mary Amadeus came down with pneumonia, sends word to Mary Fields because she they had become kind of friends and she trusted her to come and help her help nurse her back to health so Mary Fields goes up to Montana nurses mother Amadeus um, back to health and she really solidifies her friendship with This, you know, Mother Superior and the rest of the nuns. And she loves children. She loved those kids that she helped, you know, partially raise. And um, they had work for her. So she stayed. And she did all kinds of odd jobs around the convent and school. Um, She worked, you know, did the laundry, she grew vegetables. She would go into town and get, like, drive, you know, a stagecoach or whatever, and into town ten and a half miles away and get supplies for the convent, come back. Um, She would tend the chickens, and she would repair buildings. So she did everything from outside to inside. She'd do whatever. Um... It's also worth noting that Mary Fields was six feet tall and 200 pounds. She was a large lady. And it's noted that she wore men's jackets and shirts because she couldn't fit in women's. And, you know, back then they just took a whole shit ton of cloth and wrapped it around you and was like, all right, there's your skirt. So it didn't really matter that she was larger for that, but she wasn't, I saw pictures. She wasn't like fat or anything. She was just a huge lady that could get some shit done. Um, Speaking of getting some shit done, (laughs) she was also along with her size and being able to do what was considered men's work. Uh, she would saddle up to the bar with the rest of the men and spoke all sorts of foul language and smoked and um, fought and was quite skilled with guns (laughs) to the point where um, at some point in um, 1894, in fact, she got kicked out of the convent. The nuns all tried really hard to convince the bishop that they wanted her to stay and that they they would, you know, help her calm her um, bad attitude and, you know, keep her from having fights. But apparently things got to the point where she had a scuffle with one of the people that worked for her because she had actually worked her way up in this convent to where she was like the forewoman. She was in charge of all the work that got done at this convent. And so this dude that worked for her was essentially, you know, this just handyman working for them, Um, did not like the fact that not only was she a woman and she was black and in charge of him, but because she had that higher position was in charge of more, she had a higher pay. He didn't like any of that. And um, so he got rowdy and she pulled out some guns and was like, you shut your fucking mouth. This is how it's going to be. And that's what ultimately got her kicked out. So because again, all the nuns, mother Amadeus totally loved her. They were like, We have a little bit of money set aside. We can help you um, open a restaurant. We think you'd be great, open a restaurant. So she opened a restaurant and unfortunately her bleeding heart was bigger than her mind for money. So she went bankrupt because she would never turn a hungry person away whether they could pay or not. she would just if you were starving and couldn't pay, she'd be like, that's okay, honey here have some food. Yeah you know? I mean're anyway. right. <laughs> okay. so like I said, after about 10 months, restaurant went tits up, didn't work out. but eventually she got word of a contract being up for bid with the U.S. Postal Service. And it was the exact route from that she had been taking when she was working for the convent. It was going from that town to the convent. And it was rough terrain. It was way out in the middle of nowhere. But she knew it. And she was like, I'll do it. Never mind the fact that she was 60 years old. (laughs) She beat out every single person because she was the fastest person to hitch a team of six horses. (laughs) I freaking love it. She's 60 fucking years old and she's like, I can do this any faster than not only any of you men, any of you white dudes, but also anyone younger than 60. (laughs) (laughs) Or <laughs> <We're> older <laughs> So um, She uh, One thing I love that she had Actually five horses and one mule And the mule's name was Moses <laughs> Kind of a little tribute To the religious Nuns you know <laughs> um, But yeah She got And oh the contracts were four-year contracts she got awarded two four-year contracts back-to-back oh wow yeah and she was so reliable she never once missed a day not even when the snow and weather was so crazy like the snow was just super high that even the horses just they were like "Mm -mm." especially Moses you know mules are (laughs) they're not trying to go but um she would just strap it on a bag you know a backpack or whatever and she'd put some snowshoes on her feet and she'd hike that shit the 10 and a half miles through the snow to make sure that it you know the mail got out there and then their mail got back to town um but yeah she was so beloved by the town and everyone that um they started celebrating her birthday and she didn't know exactly when her birthday was but she celebrated on march 15th and the whole town of cascade montana would even let like the kids take off school and they would celebrate mary's birthday i love that isn't that awesome um she, oh, another thing I said, how she'd love to, you know, belly up to the bar like anybody else, but she not only had quite the taste for liquor, she could really hold it so much so that she could out drink most men. <laughs> I'm like, that's my girl. <laughs> um, Yeah, she did that until she was 71 she retired quote-unquote retired um in 1903 at the age of 71 um and instead decided to just run a laundry business outside of her home (laughs) still really fucking hard work (laughs) oh and occasionally watch people the town people's children because she loved kids she was seventy-one. Is that what you said when she, when opened she up- retired? Yeah, um, she ended up passing away uh, in nineteen fourteen. So eighty. Oh my god, I'm too tired. Anyway, eighty <laughs> something. <laughs> eighty-two. Be that old. Yeah, eighty-two she yeah she passed away at 82 but that was you know way back then when people barely lived to be 60
1: I'm trying to you know that damn tuberculosis look
0: she definitely had no tuberculosis happening No <laughs> <laughs> cake okay. it's all also really cool though too to me because um like even now as women we, still are fighting like these gender barriers of like women are supposed to do this and be this way. And, you know, and even men, I shouldn't leave men out too, because there's a lot of men out there that are not trying to be this specific masculine figure that they've always been told they have to be. Um, But way back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, she was still pushing these gender roles. She never got married. She never had kids she loved baseball she would constantly be seen at the local baseball fields watching people and she would like what was it she awarded the winner the winning team with a giant basket of her vegetables from her garden that was like prize-winning vegetables or something and like i said she you know wore men's shirts and jackets and could do hard physical labor that even some men couldn't do and i think she was a badass
1: she was a badass right being, honestly being a mail carrier yeah was a pretty rough job yeah although i have had moments where i'm like i would love that job oh just, yeah i would just be walking around listening to podcasts all day you know
0: oh completely i have heard that those little uh mail carrier um Vehicles are super fun to drive around. <laughs> I to buy Seattle on tap one.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> just zoom around in it, <laughs> scaring people. <laughs> just hopping in with some like, did you know that John Wayne Gacy? Blah 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 blah. <laughs> like, why? Why is this random person me telling me these awful facts? <laughs> and then bye. <laughs> Drink good local beer. <laughs> well, yeah. So that's my story today. I love
1: it. <laughs> uh, no one. I have a more dark story to tell today. It well, happens, you know. But first, should we take a beer up slash tinkle break slash
0: you need to get more water break i do need to get more water <laughs> uh, all right we'll do a little quick pause and we're back all right bring us back down to back down to a level <laughs> Oh
1: yeah, today's is a doozy. All right. So first of all, when I went into researching this, I thought I was gonna be writing a very different story. Oh, I love when that happens. Oh. <laughs> oh <God. laughs> uh we'll just jump right into it. So on June fifth, 1945 police arrived to an apartment at 4108 north kenmore avenue in chicago illinois this is no routine check they arrived to find the body of 43 year old josephine ross with her head wrapped in her dress and then she had been stabbed multiple times mm, okay at the time this murder occurred josephine's two daughters uh, who would have been like late teens, early 20s-ish, were also living in this apartment. Hmm. Police searched the apartment and it appeared that nothing of value had been taken. Police immediately began trying to rule out suspects. So, they do what they always do when they start calling ex-boyfriends and ex-husbands and things to see if anybody has beef. Yeah. Um, and all of them had an alibi and no reason to be suspected otherwise. At the time Josephine's body was found, she had a whole fist clenched full of thick, dark hair trapped in her hand. So that's some forensic evidence there right away. Um, Oh, you know what's really funny? I didn't tell you the story I'm doing.
0: Yeah, you didn't at all. I thought it was like, you're going to wait and be surprised. (laughs) Apparently, I can't say words now. I'm glad I'm done with my story. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the basis of this story is the Lipstick Killer. Yeah. I don't know. I've heard the name, but I don't know the story. That's good. (laughs) Because it's a wild fucking tale, man. Yikes. Yeah. So
1: investigators had suspected that Josephine, she must have been surprised probably by a potential robber and had been killed as a result of catching them off guard. Mm-hmm. Uh, one witness in the building said that they saw a, quote, dark-complected man running from the scene, but authorities were never able to find any connection to this person that yeah. was a mystery person. Yeah. During the investigating Josephine's murder, on December 10th, 1945, police were called to 3941 North Pine Grove Avenue in Chicago. and A cleaning lady in the building called to have a well I can't speak English again. See, this is why we do this. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. the uh, lady in the building called to have a welfare check done yeah, there it is that's the word i couldn't even think of it <laughs> uh, so she passes by an apartment while she's cruising down the hall and the apartment belonged to 33 year old francis brown francis's radio was a full blast and her door was just slightly cracked open and the cleaning lady called out to her, and you know, is anybody home? etc. Okay. There was no answer. And she was like, oh no, something's really horribly fucking wrong. So police entered to find Frances with a knife hanging out of her neck and a gunshot wound to the head. No. And <laughs> nothing of value seemed to be missing. However, this time on a nearby wall, the words, quote, for heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. Was scrawled on the wall in lipstick. Oh,
0: okay.
1: Inside Francis's apartment, investigators found a bloody smudge. It was a partial fingerprint in the door frame of the entrance of the apartment. This evidence was collected at the time. Neighbors reported hearing gunshots around 4 a.m. Oh, burps. Um, and another account of a quote, nervous man getting off the elevator and then mm-hmm. walking. Streets is reported. That's the only physical description that person gave. Mm -hmm. In the case of Francis, police released a statement four days after her murder saying that they had reason to believe that her killer was a woman. Also, really (laughs) in Chicago 1940s, the murder rate was relatively high, but these two women being murdered and what Google Maps currently shows as a 13 minute walk apart, people were probably on fucking edge.
0: Like, freaking the fuck out. That would be like- 40s, was that kind of still tail end of gangster times? Yes. Or right, still in the middle, I guess. And during the war. Some war okay. going. All right, yeah. Show.
1: Yeah, a very short walk apart. Just shy of a month later, The parents of a six-year-old girl named Suzanne Degnan woke up to find their daughter was missing from their home in Edgewater. And during the search of the residence, people, people, the police people specifically, found a ladder outside of their apartment window.
0: Oh.
1: Yeah. They also found a ransom note. And this note was written, like, first of all, it looks like a 12-year-old wrote it, but. Of course. Get 20,000 ready and wait for word. Do not notify FBI or police. Bills in fives and tens burn this for her safety. Is what they found.
0: Burn Burn. Burn. (laughs) Just like, but, but the, you're leaving it for the cops to find. Who are you burning it from? Like, Mm -hmm. what, why? (laughs) Indeed.
1: Shortly after Suzanne's disappearance, a man apparently called for the ransom, but then hung up before any useful information was ever given. Um, that phone call was later found out to be a cruel prank by local teenagers, which, why the fuck kids do that shit? Is beyond me. That's so mean. Mm Mhm. Um, also around this time, the mayor of Chicago was sent a note that said, quote, This is to tell you how sorry I am for not getting old Degman instead of his girl. Roosevelt and the OPA made their laws, why shouldn't I, and a lot more. So during this time, there was a humongous nationwide strike going on in the meat world.
0: Oh, okay.
1: And the office, um, it's the Office of Price Administration at the OPA. Yeah. Um, it of making plans to extend the rationing, so apparently, like, long story short, they basically were like, we're not paying y'all anymore, you know how strikes work. Yeah. We'll find other people to do it. And it was a huge meat shortage, but then because, you know, meat, especially beef and things, the dairy world goes hand in hand. Yeah. we to ration out meat and dairy products. So people were like paying hey, a small fortune to get this much meat, you know, the whole fucking sitch. Yeah. Um, so Eggman, who was a senior executive of the administration had just recently been transferred to Chicago. And during the time of the strike, another executive of the administration had to hire himself security after he received a bunch of threats against his children. And another Chicago man who was involved in the black market sales of meat was murdered by decapitation. Dang. That's how hardcore they were dealing with all this shit. I mean, okay. <laughs> so considering all of that, it was pretty high up on the list of possibility that the killer was probably a meat packer. On the same day that Suzanne was reported missing, another anonymous tip came in police um, and a block from her house, the authorities found the little girl's head in the sewer. <sighs> yes, that's, this is not gonna be, we're gonna have a hard time with this one. Um, they then decided they needed to just look around and search more storm drains. They're like, okay, we found her head, what's going on here? Yeah, we need more. <laughs> and all the catch basins and things Um, and they later found separately her right leg, her torso, and then her left leg. Hmm. Her arm was found until February 20th. Whoa. Police later found blood stains in the drains and tubs of a nearby apartment building at uh, 5901 Winthrop Avenue and it was discovered to have been the place that her killer had dismembered her. Mm, okay. The killer stated at the time of the death um, that she would have probably died between like midnight and 1 a.m. Mm-hmm. He also said that the killer clearly used expert skills and a very sharp knife to dismember her. Uh, so several witnesses in this case uh, gave statements to the police, in- including the neighbor who lived in the apartment right above the Degnans. In statement, she said that she arrived home just before 1 a.m. and reported hearing loud male voices and dogs barking. Another in the building said that they also heard dogs barking during the same time. A couple reported looking out their window around 3 a.m. and seeing a man described as wearing a gray hat and a tan coat trying to get into the basement laundry room where Suzanne had been dismembered. Mm. But they saw that guy run off as somebody passed by, hmm. and they voting and being like, oh, that's kind of weird. Also, the tenant that lived directly above the laundry room reported seeing a man um, go into the laundry room around 3.40 in the morning, staying for like 10 to 15 minutes and then leaving and then returning again for another 15 minutes or so and then left again and then came back for 15 minutes or so, but was only there that time, for like a really quick in and out trip. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting too, since... Mm-hmm. She was dropped in several places. Um, Several other witnesses came forward, but truthfully, it was a whole lot of, I saw some crazy
0: lady drive down the street,
1: I saw this one guy wearing a jacket that looked just like, you know.
0: all And yeah, given the time, like, yeah, there was some crazy stuff going on also, so yeah.
1: But none of the additional information had anything to do with, like, her or the laundry room. So they were like, this is, thank you for telling us that your neighbor goes grocery shopping every Tuesday. And so now that everyone's thoroughly traumatized by those events, let's talk about suspects. Because that shit starts to get really real. So Hector Verberg, so first of all, I, some, his name, I don't know if I'm pronouncing right, but I'm just going to go for it. Okay. Do it. <laughs> Hector Verberg, a 65 year old Belgian immigrant, uh, was detained and held for 48 hours of questioning, uh, for the crime. Yeah. Well, he was a janitor in the building where the Degnans lived. Um, and he was arrested despite several discrepancies. Uh, <laughs> which included his complete lack of skills when it came to like butchering or cutting any meat thing (laughs) but also he had no basic knowledge of anatomy and some of the quote evidence that police were holding against him was that the ransom note was dirty and so clearly it must have been written by somebody that had dirty hands you
0: know like a janitor and so it's pretty crazy how often it People just immediately look to a janitor for things all the time. <laughs> Poor fucking guy.
1: I know. The so fun fact: Hector's first language was not English, and in fact, he wasn't really able to write English at all. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So clearly, it wasn't him. Having said that, the note is very poorly written, but this dude is still not yeah in English. Um, so during the time Hector was held for questioning he was subjected to really horrific beatings, um, beatings that left him severely injured and needing to be hospitalized for 10 days. Jesus. Um, He did give a statement after he was released and was in hospital care. And he said, this is obviously written out. I'm not going to try to do a Belgian accent because I don't know how to do it. So (laughs) he wrote, oh, they hanged me up. They blindfolded me. I can't put my arms up. They're just too sore. They had handcuffs on me for hours and hours. They threw me in a cell and blindfolded me. They handcuffed my hands behind my back and pulled me up on bars until my toes touched the floor. I know each I go to the hospital. Oh, I'm so sick. Anymore, and I would have confessed to anything.
0: (sighs) Poor guy.
1: You bet your fucking ass Hector sued the shit out of Chicago PD and won.
0: Oh, good. Fun fact, Hector, not the killer. <laughs> Fun fact, you can't just beat people and then be like, okay, it was him.
1: <laughs> there was unfortunately more than one false lead the police would follow. A man named Sidney Sherman was also interrogated after police found blonde hairs behind the apartment building where the Degnans lived, along with a handkerchief that had the name, the initial S and then Sherman embroidered on it and suspicion in their defense suspicion arose when they went to question this person which i also wasn't able to find how they came to his name specifically yeah they just were like that's probably that guy
0: he was probably someone that annoyed them for something else and they were like we'll get him for something just keep him in your back pocket you know and i so at the time that
1: he They decided they were going to go after him. Sorry, I'm burping and I'm trying to talk at the same time. And it's not working. (laughs) Um, He actually had picked up and moved out of his apartment and quit his job abruptly. So that looks pretty suspicious. Yeah. But what actually happened, they tracked him down and he was, uh, like in your story, Toledo, Ohio. Oh. He had relocated, but that's because he and his, he was, had just recently been discharged from the Marines. Mm Mm-hmm decided, you know what? I'm in love with my girlfriend and we're gonna get married and move somewhere where nobody knows, us and start over. So it was just really shitty timing. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless, he was still questioned and given a polygraph test, uh, which he passed. And then it was discovered that the piece of evidence that brought the police to him in the first place didn't actually even belong to him. It was not <laughs> the handkerchief. The handkerchief belonged to a man named Seymour Sherman who was in the Air Force, but he was actually not even in the country at the time of Suzanne's murder. Um mm-hmm. question him, he's like, I don't fucking know how my handkerchief gets got there. I have no idea. But I wrote my notes, I was like, turns out sometimes people drop their fucking hanky. Cause that happens. You can't right. loan
0: it to somebody and then laundromat,
1: yeah. it gets lost in somebody else's shit in the laundromat
0: Laundromats, yeah. yeah, for sure.
1: Then in a strange turn of events, a man from Arizona named Richard Russell, who was a nurse that had been living in Chicago at the time of Suzanne's murder, confessed to the murder. Hmm. Richard was being held in prison for molesting one of his own daughters at the time of the confession, first of all. Um, Handwriting comparisons were made and experts found that it was very likely he was the guy. Um, But on the same day that he confessed, a new suspect had emerged And Richard Russell sort of just fell out off the radar. And then shortly after Richard uh, would just recant his confession anyway, he just was like, "Mm."
0: well, I was kidding. On June 26,
1: 1946, a 17 year old young man was arrested after attempting to burglarize a neighbor's apartment. And the neighbor spotted him and chased him off, tried to corner him. And the young man turned and pulled a gun on the neighbor and the neighbor backed off. He was like, Oh shit, not going to die over this little boy. (laughs) Not worth it. (laughs) Young man, William Ahrens, went to go hide out in another local apartment building, but was soon spotted by another resident and turned in. And allegedly when the police arrived, young William decided he was going to try to shoot at the officers, but his gun jammed. And after a short pursuit uh, on foot he was arrested and I made a note here because one of the accounts of what happened like the foot chase
0: yeah uh,
1: was that apparently he got caught finally by running through alleys and things because one of the neighbors was taking their flower pots like in a fucking Looney Tunes cartoon and dropping them I oh. the- <laughs> uh, was I thought
0: that was- putting them out the window and dropping them on his head <laughs> It's uh, funny. <laughs> First,
1: William was treated at the hospital, but then during that time, he w- they started questioning him. Okay. Uh, he was being interviewed for by the police, and again, so up to this point, all they knew was he was robbing a person's apartment.
0: Yeah.
1: Evidently, William was being treated for a really severe concussion at the time and was interrogated nonstop for a week without the presence oh. of. a Or his parents. And according to him, he was never offered any food, water, nothing during the whole time he was being questioned.
0: Dang. He was also
1: given a dose of the barbiturate sodium pentath. wow. (laughs) (laughs) Pentathol. Oh. Sodium pentathol? Sodium pentathol, which is literally they use it as a general anesthetic.
0: Oh. So So making him less able to figure things out clearly. Cool. Sounds good. Yeah, definitely a perfect person to question.
1: While he was under the influence of this, they started questioning him about the murders. And William went on to say that he had another personality within him that he called George, and that George had probably committed the murders. And so like, Anybody that's ever had to have a surgery done of any kind or has been under <laughs> the influence of you're already laughing
0: well there's facebook memories of a of me <laughs> coming out of a of surgery <laughs> you you're not you don't make any fucking sense no, i'm just laughing and
1: like so that, dumb it's definitely <laughs> time to start questioning people about murders and shit yeah take anything they say literally you know
0: But I can't imagine yeah it's like several years ago I had my wisdom teeth out and I was like I know what's the best idea to do while Gordon and Layla go inside and get my meds I'm gonna go on Facebook and do a video (laughs) and I can't I mean if anyone had asked me anything I would have just laughed at them
1: (laughs) I tried to read a magazine upside down and smoke a cigarette in the dentist's office after oh. my of teeth pulled. <laughs> like, definitely was not in my right mind.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's just dental work. <laughs> God, not that's- along with a concussion. <laughs> no, totally.
1: You have all these things going on. Like, what, what, I don't know what the fuck the police were even thinking.
0: Well, they were thinking, hey, perfect. We'll get him to say he did it. Mm-hmm. Done.
1: So after all that very questionable interrogation finally was over, William gave an indirect confession and essentially said that he supposed it was possible that his, quote, alter ego, as claimed under the influence, may have committed the murder and that based on that, they considered it a confession. Wow. Cool. Other evidence was gathered, such as writing samples and fingerprint comparisons, both of the samples matched evidence from the scene of Francis Brown's murder, and it was then compared to the ransom note. And it was concluded that, quote, nine points of comparison, which evidently you need 12 points to like definitively say that fingerprint belongs to that person. He only matched nine, which would have matched 65% of the overall population. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's a fucking lot when you're trying to be like, it was definitely that fucking guy, first of all. yeah, There was also some flip-flopping with the Francis Brown murder fingerprint. Originally, the FBI actually looked at the samples and said it was definitely, without a doubt, not William. And then based on that information, um, the, cap- the police captain repeated that information in local newspapers. But then a couple of weeks later, they were like, oh, no, wait, it says So just to be clear william wasn't like a model citizen he was a troubled yeah. young he was again he was 17 years old at the time Ugh. he came from a family that was a little bit chaotic uh but you know they seemed pretty unstable but he was a humongous kleptomaniac um it said that he used to he like later said about himself that he used to steal to release tension because he just his life was so dreary and ongoing that he just needed some excitement of some sort um so up to this point he had not done anything to physically harm
0: any human beings
1: Mm -hmm. so none of this really matches
0: yeah yeah that's one of those things you really I mean cutting heads off people and dismembering people that's a that's a thing that you work up to he
1: Police ended up carrying out several searches of William's college dorm room um, where he primarily lived, but then also his parents' residence and home, all without a search warrant, by the way, and found a ton of stolen shit, um, including, I mean, again, he was a fucking klepto, but they also found a scrapbook with pictures of Nazi officials that had been stolen from a war vet who lived in the general area. Yeah. Yeah. murder had taken place and unfortunately for him on the same day um so specifically on that that was enough proof for them to place him at the scene of the murder even though Mm -hmm. they didn't have any other evidence yeah william was now being charged with all three of the murders and he maintained that he had never confessed and that at one point his defense attorneys said that we were like we feel like he might be guilty um, but our biggest priority now is to just keep him out of the electric chair yeah okay on um, zero evidence it's very strange William was offered a plea deal um, that instead of being sentenced to death in the, these cases he would re- they would offer him one single life sentence if he could just confess to all three Hmm. But with the help of his lawyers he and he and his parents signed the confession, but then shortly after doing so, media of course wanted to talk to this violent murder. And he basically was like, yeah, I just kind of had to do it so that they wouldn't kill me. And because he said that, the opposing attorney, they decided, you know what, fuck you, kid. We're taking the agreement off the table. You now have the option to either die and go to trial, or take a plea deal that you're getting three life sentences because you're a little shit and you need to send them.
0: What the fuck?
1: So he finally, he was like, well, the alternative is that they put me in an electric chair, so I guess I'll just be cooperative and accept. Wow. On September 4th, 1946, William's parents and the family members of the victims were all present while he spoke in court and and then, after addressing the court and all the families, he went back to his cell and tried to kill himself. Hmm. The formal sentencing came the very next day on September 5th, 1946. And he was given all three lifetimes. Damn. After the sentencing, William continued to say that he wasn't guilty. And even the daughter of Josephine Ross, actually, who was living in the apartment, she didn't think justice had been served because she said, quote, I cannot believe that young Heron's murdered my mother. It just doesn't fit in the picture of my mother's death. I've looked over all of the things that he's stolen, and there's nothing of my mom's amongst any.
0: Dang. Her
1: daughter was like, yeah. William was given institutional parole for Suzanne's murder in 1955, which basically just means they're like, all right, you've served your time on that. Next one. Mm-hmm. But then in 1966 he began serving the next life sentence and according to the law at the time of his sentencing william would have been discharged for francis brown's murder sentence in 1975 and then his remaining charges in 1993. Mm. several moves are made to prevent that from happening and in 1983 the seventh district u.s court of appeals ruled and it was unconstitutional to refuse parole for folks that had been convicted before 1973. The law after that. Mm-hmm. But the siblings of Suzanne and other family members fought that decision in court, and he lost. Several petitions for parole were made over the years, um, and many people tried to have all these cases reopened because they were like, "They don't." There's a 43 year old woman who was killed, stabbed. Yeah. And there's a 33 year old woman who was stabbed and shot. Yeah. And who he was dismembered. None of the crimes match at all. And yeah. the only one was the lipstick on the wall thing. So how are we connecting all these dots? Yeah. And a former LA police officer started looking into the case. Um, and in 2003, he went to the court and was like, I want to file a request for an appeal because I think y'all have the wrong guy. Like, there's no way to be the right person. Yeah. And uh, it went up. And on July 26, 2007, he was denied again. Dang. William Herons died of complications to diabetes on March 5th, of 2012, at the age of 83. And he was the longest held prisoner in the prison that he lived in.
0: And I don't think he did it. Wow, that is so fucking awful.
1: (laughs) And it made me be like, "Holy shit, that this happens a
0: lot, like too much." Yeah, that's why there's an entire organization that's very well known called the Innocence Project. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, fucking terrible. I couldn't. I just reading all evidence. There's more evidence. Like, oh yeah very publicly listed, none of it matches. And like, I made a point to bring up in the first murder of Josephine Ross who yeah, plenty of dark hair. You know, he did have dark hair, but they didn't use the hair as evidence. That's so,
0: yeah. Whenever you said something about blonde hair, I'm like, but wait about, what about the the handful of Like it's, none of it matches. And I was like, how did this work the
1: court system? And also why was she Chicago PD beating the shit out of everybody. What is that? Jesus. Fucking terrible. It's yeah. so weird. But that's like a pretty famous case. So I was like, I feel like I need to do this story, even though it's not what I thought it was gonna be. Because-
0: I think that's why I don't know about it, because it's such a discombobulated we'll throw this together and this t- we need to solve all these ones. We'll just throw them on this guy and That'll work. That's not how it works, y'all. <laughs> I'm kidding. Damn.
1: And, you know, I know. That was part of the reason um, I've been trying to get a head start on the research for my next story, but I was like, I just can't do anything about murder right now. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I'm bummed out. To that, ah. so.
0: But, you know, it's, it's things like this that we do need to hear about because, rather than hearing about the dramatic kind of more i don't know flashy catching stories on the news we need to actually hear about things like this that are legit problems that just kind of get swept under the rug so that a certain set of people can say we did it it's okay and in reality, no, you didn't actually do anything other than not actually solve a murder and, you know, completely ruin a, another set of people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His uh, parents, like,
1: I think they kind of realized, like, our kid's getting fucked, but they didn't really know what else to do. Yeah. His, they changed their name and just left them. They were like, sorry, kid. Really, that poor kid really got stuck. Yeah. Dang. That's awful. It's a nice right-before-bed story. I know.
0: Maybe you should have gone first. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) The story of our lives, right? (laughs) I know. Okay, so I go second next week, which means I got to think of another slightly uplifting more historic thing again
1: <laughs> or something Nothing.
0: <laughs> it's just an excuse for me to put off the murder story that I've been researching <laughs> for another week <laughs>
1: I know I'm I really am trying to not do murder stories as much
0: anymore because I know it bums people out but I can't help it well and yeah they're very interesting and um You know, like I said, it's, you know, this kind of stuff that if we don't learn about it, then it perpetuates and perpetuates and perpetuates. So, you know, just trying to save save humanity one story at a time.
1: (laughs) 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 How much beer do you have left? Did you chug it through my story?
0: I didn't. I ended up setting it down because I found myself drinking 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 and then yawning because you know you get to that certain point of tired that you just kind of like mm.
1: <laughs> yep. he's snoring over here like crazy again Mm-hmm.
0: he finally got comfortable after a
1: while <laughs> yeah sorry if y'all could hear him being restless he was just like what you doing? Want to play with this toy with me? You're just sitting there.
0: Can I make- look? <laughs> Hi mom. I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> and then he was just trying to make sure he was comfortable. Mm-hmm. Oh, all right, friends. We should probably go to bed because it's uh, almost your
1: bedtime. Courtney.
0: It is almost my bedtime.
1: <laughs>
0: oh, I'm going to go and spend, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes with my husband and then be like, okay, bye. I'm going to bed. <laughs>
1: about soaking in the tub later, but I don't think I'm going to do that. (laughs)
0: That sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's funny how quickly that goes out the window. (laughs) All right. Well, until next week, drink good local beer.
1: And tip your fucking bartenders, please.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Bye. For more information, we can be found on Instagram at Seattle underscore on underscore tap, email at Seattle on tap at gmail.com or our website, Seattle on You can also like us on Facebook
1: and all of the Seattle on tap original music is provided by Bubble Baptism, courtesy of the Subterranaut Recording Collective.
0: Okay, I think it's happening. (laughs) That's what she said. We'll find out later.